Okay, so hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Trailblazers podcast where we look at the interesting careers of young professionals a couple of years out of their engineering degree and see the different twists and turns and journeys that they're taking that are unique. And today we have another interesting guest on the podcast. So Dave, why don't you tell us who we got on the podcast today? Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Tyler, for the intro. It's great, as always. Uh, so today on the podcast, we have Taylor Ralt, who's currently a PhD student in um, Sanford, you know, pretty decent school, right? You know, school maybe a few of us would like to go to. Um, exactly. Also, you know, another ed... Yeah, I think I think it's a pretty good one. What do you think? It's like a pretty pretty good school, eh? Like maybe maybe so. like a little bit better than the University of Alberta, like something like that. Anyways, um, yeah, another another person from Edmonton, you know, representing Tyler and I's hometown. So yeah, go Taylor. Um, so joke aside, yeah, Taylor um, is currently at uh, Stanford doing his PhD. Previously, he was spending time at the University of Toronto doing his master's, and then previous to that, uh, he was at the University of Alberta. Um, and I think a couple of very interesting stories that Taylor talks about is he talks about kind of his journey through his bachelor's and into his master's. And then at the start of his master's, not really thinking he would want to do a PhD, but then um, him mentioning afterwards, like his master's experience, like really opened that uh, opportunity up for him. And like, he really wanted to go to Stanford. And so he, I think he was talking about for almost like a year and a half to two years being in touch with like a mentor at Stanford who was trying to help him with his um, application and kind of get his information prepped for his application, which is obviously very competitive. Um, and then he shares this awesome story about how he was originally basically left off the admissions list from Stanford. And he had spent like one and a half, two years getting prepped for this, did all his publications, every little small detail he possibly could, but didn't, he didn't get accepted. And then, you know, he basically went out of his way and like, you know, he, he decided that he wanted to stay in touch, like with his uh, mentor that I talked with. And right after he got that, um, like admission, uh, notice, like not, not getting the admission, he basically went to his mentor and then uh, shared this awesome story about how he was like, Hey, you know, I did everything I possibly could. Like you thought this was competitive. Like, would you mind taking like a second look? And then the mentor went through everything. He went through like another interview process and like, alas, you know, like fighting adversity. He's now a PhD student at Stanford. So I thought it was an awesome story. Um, Tyler, what, what do you got to say about uh, Taylor's episode? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It was an awesome story about, you know, all the work, all the prep that he put in to uh, get into the PhD program there at Stanford. Um, and he touched on a lot of other really good things, too. If you're looking for a bit of, you know, what's the optimal amount of hours to work every day? Uh, he has some good metrics on that. He's tracked his own hours and seen when he's most effective. Uh, so if you want to get a really good look um, into the life of a student in PhD program at Stanford and what that would be like and how you can get there. This is definitely a good episode for you. So without further ado, we will toss it over to Taylor. And just before that, make sure you hit that like button, make sure you subscribe for uh, more content and uh, yeah, hope you enjoy the interview. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, Taylor, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the pod and chatting with us today. I think uh, for everybody listening, it'd probably be helpful if you gave kind of a 30,000 foot view, high level overview of kind of where you are now kind of where you started at the beginning of university and kind of, you know, where you ended up along the way. I know you're in a PhD now, so maybe if you could just take us from uh, start to finish what you're doing. Yeah, all right. Uh, so I went through, you know, public education in Edmonton, Alberta. And then at the end of high school, I actually uh, was interested in probably going to pursuing a music degree because uh, mm -hmm. I was really, really into being a uh, playing in bands, doing music and everything when I was in high school. But then I took high school physics and I was like, oh, that's that's awesome. So, um, 
then since I was doing well in physics and math, I decided, okay, let's uh, go into engineering. Uh, so I started my engineering degree at the University of Alberta. And from there, uh, in first year, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I was interested in the course of math and physics again. It was my cup of tea. But then uh, it came time to decide which uh, avenue I wanted to pursue. Because, you know, at U of A, you start a general first year. And then in second year, you have to specialize. So I'd been interested in cars and, uh, you know, just machines in general kind of my whole life. I remember when I was about 10 years old, uh, my dad gave me a um, a model engine to put together. Like I had like a kind of a plastic uh, model engine to build when I was uh, 10 years old for, for Christmas. So I was interested in, or I guess uh, we put together this model engine when I was 10 years old. And so um, I was always interested in, in machinery and this has kind of sparked uh, an interest in a more in-depth understanding of, okay, how machines actually work. Cause like the engine is actually what makes the car go. Right. So, you know, it's cool to be interested in cars and everything, but actually understanding what the, how, how the technology works is really interesting. So uh, I guess in first year engineering, uh, that's, I was like, okay, you know what? Mechanical engineering is probably the way to go. It also helped that most of my friends were also uh, interested in, in pursuing mechanical engineering. So like natural, natural choice. So, and I just went through, went through that, uh, I was fortunate to get into the co-op program. And um, from then on, kind of started doing a little bit better in school and realized, okay, you know, maybe grad school is, grad school is a thing. We'll probably talk about that more later. Um, and then when it, it came time to finish up undergrad, I'd had a few different co-op jobs and I didn't really see myself working in them long term. So, uh, and also... Midway through undergrad, I realized that you know car engines are not just the only thing. There's also jet engines and rockets, and they're all just combustion related. And you know that's very, very exciting, particularly with you know SpaceX and everything that was really burgeoning during our undergrad. So uh, I decided to pursue a master's degree in aerospace engineering, uh, specializing in combustion and propulsion. And so the uh, I applied to various schools, and so the one that I ended up getting into is University of Toronto, um, and the lab I was working in ended up being able to work on uh, soot formation in a model gas turbine combustor. So very directly related to, um, you know, combustion jet engines and just, you know, overall aerospace. So uh, the great thing about that master's degree too, is we were actually affiliated with Pratt & Whitney Canada. And so my plan was, um, you know, just get the master's degree and then go work at an engine company, Pratt & Whitney Canada. That'd be, you know, a really, nice, smooth way to um, transition out of school. And so halfway through the master's, I realized, okay, you know, I think I really like this research research kind of thing. So I decided let's, let's try and pursue a PhD. And around this time as well, one of my um, professors decided, or he uh, noticed I was doing well on a course and um, I, you know, I was interested in doing more research. So he said, hey, why don't you check out one of these labs at Stanford? Actually, one of the former graduates from University of Toronto is professor, professor now there. Well, professor there now. And so uh, I looked at the lab and it wasn't my cup of tea, but then they got me on the website and actually found a lab that I knew exactly or that, that was um, very much in alignment with my interests. And I go, you know, let's, let's do that. So um, actually you know, positioned myself so that I could give myself the best chance possible to get into Stanford. And lo and behold, the plan worked. And here I am. So now I'm doing a PhD in mechanical engineering at Stanford, uh, and I'm uh, in the high temperature gas dynamics laboratory using shock waves to study uh, chemical kinetics. So 
basically uh, you use a shock wave to initiate chemical reactions because across the shock you get a uh, effectively instantaneous increase in temperature and pressure, which kickstarts reactions. And then what we do is we shoot lasers through uh, these gas phase reactions to measure reactant concentrations as a function of time. And from that, uh, by knowing the reactant concentrations and the temperature and pressure, we can gain uh, insight into the reaction rates, which are then used to inform chemical models, et cetera, that are used to design engines and um, myriad other things. So that's where I am now. So hopefully, hopefully that's a good synopsis. For sure. I think that's like a really nice kind of, you know, like high level view of maybe everything that's gone on in your life to this point. Obviously, you know, like a lot of kind of like bends and twists along the way, which I think is quite exciting. Would you mind maybe almost bringing us back to say like when you were a bachelor's student and you're going and doing your internships at that point in time, was there anything within your internships that like really kind of set the trajectory and helped you sort of realize that you wanted to go and pursue graduate studies or maybe like a specific area of graduate studies that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, definitely. So, um, so in my first year of undergrad, um, I did reasonably well. I guess okay. I had about a three point three GPA. But then in second year, I really, uh, for whatever reason, uh, I ended up doing a lot better. I guess I was more focused and more interested. I ended up having like a three point nine GPA in second year. And so, but due to my first year grades, I don't think as many employers were necessarily as um, interested in my transcript. And frankly, I also didn't. I didn't submit cover letters or anything like that. So the first job I got in industry was uh, just at, you know, an oil field construction company. And so I was working as a junior mechanical estimator. And frankly, like you could just, I was sitting in Excel all day, just um, looking at, looking at drawings and then taking, taking numbers off and like, okay, you know what, this is not that exciting. And, you know, while it was an entry level job, um, I saw the other people at the company and it really just like, okay, you know, there's not too much more to this really. Perhaps I was being oversimplistic, but I was like, okay, you know what? I, I think I want to do something more. And so uh, since I was also doing better in school and I was gaining more interest in what I was learning, um, the thought started to kind of creep in that I wanted to do a master's degree, uh, just based on you know the fact that I didn't really see myself working in that job. Uh, then, so that was kind of when it was brewing. And then in, second, in my second co-op term, I was working uh, at Fantech Consulting. And so... Mm-hmm. I was working actually as an industrial co-op student. So looking at, you know, building design and how to optimize, um, you know, building layouts for more efficiency, so like warehousing and things like that, how, where you store things to make sure you um, can pack a truck the most efficient way possible. And so, you know, it was really interesting. Um, and I actually got to use some, uh, started to learn how to code in VBA and do some, you know, uh, simulations in Excel for trying to optimize and things. But again, I was like, you know what, this is, it's interesting, but I still think that I'm probably more interested in, uh, you know, engines and trying to actually do something really technical with my with my understanding or with my uh, degree. So, uh, also during that work term, I was a little bit bored. There were a few times when you know I didn't have that much to do, and I ended up um, browsing Wikipedia and came across basic fighter maneuvers uh, for you know fighter jets. And so yeah. I hadn't I hadn't really. This is at the time when I was just kind of realizing, oh, jet engines are, are you know, another piece of mechanical engineering. Um, and so reading that article, just kind of, the coin just kind of dropped, like, oh, aerospace would be awesome. Because, you know, like, flight is just a total amalgamation of all fields of engineering. It's outstanding. Um, there's so much you could do with it. So uh, that was really kind of at the point where I was like, okay, you know, I think doing something in the aerospace field would be 
with the ideal. And, you know, of course, the more and more you read about it, the more and more interest you get into it. And so then read the book, Elon Musk's book, um, or right, the Ashley Vance's biography of him and things like that. So that was, I'd say probably around mid-2016 was when it really crystallized that, okay, I want to do a, a master's in aerospace. Yeah, that's a, no, that's a good, that's a good summary of it for sure. I kind of want to go back to the second year when you said that your GPA went from a 3.3 to a 3.9. Was this, I assume this was intentional and kind of the question I would have is, you know, a lot of students probably realize they're going to need, if they want to pursue graduate degrees, like you have like a master's or a PhD, they're going to need a higher GPA. Uh, So say they're in the position you were at at the start of second year. Were there some habits that you kind of instilled or some really tangible things you did that helped your GPA uh, go up? I can't really give advice on that. I was never part of the high grades club, but maybe you can. That'd be probably useful for our listeners. Um, And then on top of that, the difference between that, I I would also ask, uh, how much have you noticed the difference in your habits as a student between your undergrad and now as a researcher in your PhD? You know, how much has your approach to learning changed over the years? Yeah, all right. Um, so I guess starting with first year undergrad, the reason I had the GPA I did was, so my, my transcript was a total rainbow. I had everything from a C all the way to A pluses. And so, um, it carried over basically from high school where I only studied the things that I was interested in and only really invested in things I was interested in. And then it's like, you know what? I don't need those other things. And so, uh, case in point in second year, you remember the, uh, or second, second term, there was, uh, learning how to use MATLAB. I, I thought for whatever reason, I usually like, oh, MATLAB's not important. I'm never going to need this. So I just didn't even go to the lectures, didn't really work on the assignments, basically winged it for the midterm and final. By some miracle, I passed. Um, and so the biggest thing that I uh, changed in second year, I changed for me was, first of all, the courses were by and large more interesting to me because in first year, I, I did reasonably well in math and physics anyways. Um, but then in second year, the courses were more interesting. But also, I realized, okay, you know what? I just need to actually invest more time in the courses I'm not interested in because I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be interested in studying the courses that I'm interested in anyway, anyways. But mm-hmm. I need to just actually dedicate. So, for example, do do those assignments first. For, for example, like in first year, I didn't study that much chemistry, um, which is also funny for where I am now. Um, but in retrospect, I should have actually, you know, done those assignments first. Uh, because they actually took more effort and then it's easier to just when you're a little bit more tired to focus on the things that are um, more in your alley anyways so uh, that's I guess the only uh, advice I can really give there but um, yeah just I guess structuring it such that you can set yourself up for success there Um, and then as far as the change uh, for now that I'm in grad school the big change that I noticed relative from undergrad to grad school was um, I started actually tracking my hours and tracking how I spend my time. So when I was working in consulting, in order to get paid, I had to submit my hours at the, every, at the end of every week. And I didn't really do that during undergrad for school or assignments because you just have to submit the assignment and then you're done. But um, in grad school, you have coursework, but you also have research. And so um, what I started to do was you know, um, track my time and not just the amount of time I was at school, but the actual focused hours and like uh, focused time I spent on given things at school. So at the end of every day, I'd kind of break things down into 15 minute increments and say, okay, I spent an hour working on this course, uh, two hours in the lab, another two hours doing literature review and things like that. 
Um, and the benefit there I found was that, first of all, if I gave myself a quota of, say, five hours a day of focused productive time, and I just, that's relatively easy to hit, you know, if, mm -hmm. if you actually um, want to do it. Um, but it's not, it's not unattainable by any means. So as long as I was clearing that five hour minimum, like, you know what, I'm good and everything else is just gravy. Um, and then I, what I could also do is with the data. So let's say I, in one week I worked say 35 hours and then um, the next week I was super busy in lab and so then I put in 60, right? Then invariably, whenever I did like a big jump or I worked really, really hard one week, the next week was just terrible. So it was about trying to figure out what's the optimal amount that I put in every day and just do that consistently. And then mm -hmm. just don't push fast, push past that. So I found that somewhere around maybe six to seven, like focused productive hours per day is good and totally sustainable. And then if I stop and then I can go to the gym or do whatever else with the rest of my day and not have to worry about it. Cause like if I'm, then I don't feel bad that, Oh, I'm not in the lab all the time working. Um, I know that if I, if I were to be working, it would actually be worse overall. So it's just, that was, I'd say a bigger, uh, shift, if that makes sense, because it was just a different way of looking at things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, kind of maybe just touching on the first portion of what you were mentioning, say like you would be really focused into the courses that you had interest in and you wanted to do well. And then kind of these ones that are off to the side, like even in my experience, cause I think Taylor, similar to you, like I started off as a lower GPA and by the time, you know, my bachelor's was ending was higher, like getting ready for grad school and then grad school, same thing is that like you sort of, or at least for me, like I realized after a while is even the things that you thought weren't as important, like for me is same thing, like the MATLAB in year one was just like, and then, you know, but I realize now is that these things that are sort of adjacent in our skill sets, they actually can come back and like impact some of these other courses that you didn't realize that had like any yeah. involvement with that. Right. And I think even the same perspective now, like in say my current working environment is that a lot of the things that I thought might have not been as important, they all have an impact and they all influence say like the things that we do on a day to day basis. So even, you know, some things that can often be overlooked, like communication skills or say like going in like in an internship, like grabbing coffee with your coworkers or doing something like that, like you don't realize, but like five or 10 years down the line, those like very fundamental things that you were doing at those points, they actually have like a very strong impact on some of the skills that you'll develop over the period of time. And then um, actually, I really like the approach that you're doing too, in regards to say like tracking your work hours. I think it's, it's very important too. And also the one thing that I sort of like with that aspect that you're mentioning too, is you kind of have like a threshold and you're like, once I hit here, like I feel satisfied and you know, I don't need to go and continue working right because i think it can almost be like a bit of a fallacy sometimes about we just go and work you know 10 hours in a day but they're not 10 productive hours right yeah like so you know some some things that like people utilize like i use utilize myself is like pomodoro technique so just like 25 minutes on five minutes off and then you can track how many times you do that in a day right and sort of you know yeah. what you're mentioning taylor you you hit a point and it's good um and also, I think these are like great advice for anybody listening. So where I think I want to kind of point my next question is maybe, you know, talking a little about some of the adversities you might have faced along your journey. And um, you, maybe you can describe to us like an example of a time of the adversity that you faced and what you sort of did to overcome that adversity. And um, what I'll kind of point is like the second question of this would be, you know, do you mind kind of sharing to any students that are in school right now or young professionals, any advice on, you know, facing adversity and over overcoming them? All right. Uh, so I guess first I'll start off by saying, you know, I really haven't had to deal with very much. I've had a very, very blessed life. There's haven't been too many challenges, but um, when you guys gave me kind of the feeder question before this, the one thing that I thought about was 
when I was initially considering grad school and doing research, um, I I hadn't really I knew knew nobody really in or that had done uh, a graduate degree right in my family, and I was just kind of going going blind. I didn't really know how to approach it. So what I initially did is um, in second or no third year, like when I was looking at my I guess would have been my second co-op term uh, before I worked for that consulting company. I was actually talking to one of our professors about. And I was researcher's interesting, so I said, okay, you know what, maybe I can just see if I can work for him for um, the next eight months. And so scheduled a meeting with him, and uh, so what ended up happening, he asked for my transcript, my resume, and so uh, I gave him all that information. And so my first year I had 3.3, and the second year I had the 3.9. And so he said, okay, yeah, you know, your second year grades are, are good, um, but then your first year grades are uh, holding you back. Uh, like, you know, I, I would all the students I have in my lab, I would expect to have, you know, a little bit higher performance. And first of all, I was just floored by that. So like when, if I can get a 3.9 now, then does that not negate what happened in first year? Uh, and even like 3.3 is not, not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, that kind of uh, rocked me. And so I didn't actually, based on that conversation too, it just didn't generally go well. So I didn't end up working for him. Um, and then later on in undergrad, I had some other experiences with, uh, faculty that were not very good um, and so like just that you know they didn't perhaps I didn't seem interested enough or um, they just sensed that I was not you know, the right person for whatever reason so anyways I was just kind of steered away from from research and so the only thing that actually I knew I still wanted to do a master's degree I was considering doing an MNG mm-hmm. um, but the, the only thing that really kind of brought me back to research was thankfully uh, a good friend of mine, his his dad and his uncle both have PhDs in physics, and they said, you know, they hey Taylor, you know, you should really um, do research because they they had known me for a while, and so they you know knew that they, I was probably well suited for it. Um, so I guess point being, uh, and then ended up getting into grad school and uh, doing research, and I really enjoyed it a lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess uh, point being, like I would not necessarily. Uh, take what uh, your professors and advisors say in undergrad if they don't know you that well as, you know, gospel or whether they, they don't necessarily know you. And so if you do really think that something is of your interest, um, still figure out some way to pursue it. And I think the reason that I didn't jive well with those uh, advisors is because, frankly, I, the, the research was not actually truly in my area of interest. Um, and so I don't know if there's people out there that are not, not that, uh, that are struggling with, you know, trying to find a research position or thing they have um, not the great grades or whatever else, that probably doesn't matter as much as actually finding uh, what your interest is. Cause that was one of the big, mm-hmm. the big struggles I had, you know, trying to balance where my interests were and where I wanted to do for grad school. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's a really good point. And just to follow up on that, uh, I know you kind of touched on the, uh, the point earlier that when you were doing your co-op terms, you knew that you really didn't want to do that as a career. And so that kind of pushed you more towards graduate studies and you found something you're really interested in. Um, at more of a higher level, what would you say, like, what type of student are, are graduate studies for and what type of student are they not for? Kind of like if they, if a student can't find a job, should they go into graduate studies for no other reason and try to find something or should you be really intrinsically curious about something in order to pursue graduate studies? What, what case works and what case doesn't? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a very good question. So, uh, I, I think interest is 
just the most important thing. So if there's something that you're really interested in, I don't think it matters actually too much what your grades are. Uh, you could probably go and actually pursue that. So for example, like I, there's some guys in the lab I was at University of Toronto who had, you know, um, say a 3.3, 3.4 GPA that were still just keenly interested in the research. So they actually were able to go and do that, pursue it. And then they were able to get a job in industry after and they're, they're happy uh, with, mm-hmm. their, with their career choice. But then um, I'll use another example from uh, my master's. There was a, one of my lab mates. Um, he's joined the lab, you know, interested in aerospace, but not really sure exactly what he wanted to do. Um, and he got a very tough master's project. It was, you know, <laughs> I, I'm glad I didn't get that one. Um, but so that, that was a tough thing for him. And he's kind of actually about 20 months into the master's program. He ended up uh, quitting because he realized, yeah, this is just not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that he wasn't interested initially in pursuing a graduate degree. I think he was probably, you know, on, on the side of it where, you know, he should have gone to grad school. Um, but since he wasn't that keenly interested in combustion, it wasn't really what he ended up wanting to do. Um, ultimately, him dropping out of the master's program, and actually he, he then just went to do a data science boot camp for four months after, and now he's working in data science and is enjoying it much, much more. So um, I think that was ultimately the better better choice for him. Um, and so as far as the students that I would say would probably probably ill-advised to, to go to grad school, it's like if you don't have a job out of undergrad and you're just looking for something to fill your time, um, I'd say the master's degree is not, or, or a graduate degree in general is probably not the way to go because um, you have to do a lot of literature review and read a lot of papers and things like that that are, if you aren't interested in them, they're, it's such an uphill battle. It would just not be enjoyable, first of all. And then if you're not that interested in it, then you're going to end up working in something probably somewhat related to what that is. And so um, mm-hmm. you're kind of setting your career up for something you're not that interested in. And there's some caveat there, you know, like you become interested in things by working on them. But, you know, if you're just trying to fill your time, then it's probably not the way to go. Yeah. I think, you know, it's really like practical advice. And from my end too, you know, I've had the perspective to also see that Taylor, like with say like friends who went and did like a master's degree right out of bachelor's who maybe say they uh, opted for that instead of like a job search or, you know, trying to kind of figure out what their vision or their purpose was. And I can completely agree because, you know, if you're going to do like a research-based master's, you know, most of the time, uh, at least two years, like I think in my case, it was 28 months. So, you know, technically two and a half years of school, right? probably similar in your case, you know, if you, if you're going to opt for that, you got to really enjoy what you're going to do. Um, or you need to be like very focused on a specific kind of area that you want to get better at. And I think actually just like a word that comes to mind for say, like a process like this is being like very deliberate and kind of like self-reflecting on say, like actually what we want to get out of the master's degree before we even do it. And that was usually the advice that I gave to people after I had started my master's degree, you know, like I, I was, I think, similar to you, Taylor, like I went into an area that I was keenly interested in. And like, although I had like a difficult project, like, and I had areas that were weak in my system for that project, like I was willing to go and, you know, put in the effort to learn and grow those areas just because, you know, I knew it was going to go and support some of the areas that I was growing uh, the skill set in. But, you know, if, if we're going to spend two plus years doing that, like we got to be inherently quite interested in that. So kind of the, or sorry, go ahead. The other thing too with that is like when you're applying to grad school, you have to put together all these essays and things like that, demonstrating why you're interested. And yeah. um, as far as I understand, the, the the two biggest things for getting you into grad school are reference letters and uh, your statement of intent. Because you know yeah. if, if you have a readable transcript, then ultimately those two things are going to be um, the, the, the kicker. And so you know getting reference letters demonstrating that you're interested, that's 
very helpful, first of all. Um, and then your statement mm -hmm. of purpose, purpose in a way writes itself if you are interested. Whereas, yes. you know, if you're not, you have no idea really where to begin. Um, and mm -hmm. it's maybe not that great of a document and probably not necessarily that worth your time at the end of the day. Uh, Absolutely. Overly dogmatic, but, you know. Yeah, uh, you're, you're right, right? And I think like these type of things even translate over into like a job search too, right? Like if you're inherently interested in a job or you're inherently interested in the company, like the, the people interviewing you or the people you're meeting with and collaborating with will be able to see that through your passion or through your interest in, you know, that process. And similar with what you're mentioning with like a statement of intent, you know, if you are inherently interested in aerospace, that's going to come through in your statement of intent. Um, yeah. What okay, so the question I'm interested in now is you know, um, people from Edmonton, Alberta, and people from other places, you know, they might think, you know, if you're a PhD student at Stanford, that's probably very demanding for your, you know, uh, life and some of the commitments that you have. So, will you mind talking to us a little bit about like your work life balance and how has the transition for you been, say, you know, going from a great school like University of Toronto for your master to Stanford for your PhD? Yeah, uh, so first of all, it has been a bit of a bit of a step up. The mm -hmm. In my master's degree, um, I had to take two courses per semester um, for the first two semesters, and then after that, it was totally research. And so, um, I was I was busy. It was more just of a of a shift in mindset from undergrad. Uh, here, and I guess in Toronto, I was able to, you know, go to the gym three times a week, play some tennis, um, see friends every once in a while. Granted, I was I was pretty busy trying to get um, get data, but it wasn't. I felt like I was actively pushing myself and it wasn't necessarily the program that was just making me work really hard. Mm -hmm. um, whereas now at Stanford, uh, they're on a quarter system here, first of all, which instead of three semesters in a year, you know, um, fall, winter, and summer, we have, you know, this spring quarter, uh, summer quarter, uh, fall quarter, and then winter quarter. And so uh, I have to take three courses per quarter in the first couple quarters here to meet some requirements. Um, and it seems as though each course is just, you know, a four month semester compressed into three months. And yeah. so first of all, coursework is much, much busier. Um, and then my advisor, thankfully the, the PhD program here is fully funded. So like I, my tuition's paid for, I, I have a stipend, uh, and my professor covers overhead, but nice. uh, it's a very significant chunk of money. And so, uh, my advisor, you know, like it cost me this much per year to have you on, you know, you got to uh, toe the line. And so the expectation for how much uh, research needs to get done, there's a decent amount of pressure. So as far as my work-life balance goes, I probably, in my master's, I was averaging about 35, say, productive hours a week, um, whereas now I've added at least 10 hours to that. So wow. I'm up at probably about 45 hours a week on average. And then during midterms, it was a little higher and finals a little higher, same uh, as you'd expect. So um, I don't think my work-life balance is the best right now, frankly. I, I'm still going to the gym three days a week, um, but I've had to cut out playing tennis because I just, the, first of all, the physical fatigue and then just scheduling it um, doesn't really work. I've been trying to go, uh, you know, go for beers, grab a, meet people once every two weeks, but it's not, I think it's only once every, every couple Saturdays. And then, yeah on uh like every every saturday i've been typically working on homework all day and so i wouldn't really say i have the best uh work-life balance but i know this is somewhat temporary given the fact that i'm still in courses so mm -hmm. later once i'm done this and i've passed my qualifying exams i anticipate that it'll be more reasonable that i can just you know get into a rhythm and do 
um, you know, a typical, let's say 35 to 40 hour uh, productive work week, and then really just actually um, set up a life here and have, have a bit more, a bit more work life balance. Whereas right now it's just kind of go, go, go. So yeah, so that's your question. For sure. I, I think that's a good way to look at it too. And that's kind of always how I understood it as well with the busy times in your life is you got to know like your baseline. Like if, you know, if your life is you're running a marathon, you got to have a sustainable pace that's, you know, at a pretty decent level. Like you say, 35 hours, those six, seven productive hours a day. And then accept the, that there's going to be times of where you're sprinting kind of, but as long as you can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, it makes it easier to get through those points. And you got to kind of like have the capacity to do that. Right. So, and just accept that they're going to, they're going to come. So I think like, yeah, the way you're approaching, it seems like a really reasonable way to do it. Cause you know, it's going to come kind of come back to that, that baseline eventually. Um, in terms of work-life balance, uh, we heard that you are a private pilot, in fact, and so recently got that. So I'm actually kind of curious, uh, you know, obviously you probably did that for enjoyment. seems like a really cool thing to do, but has that impacted the way you look at your work and your research in mechanical engineering and combustion engines? Yeah. So uh, you can kind of expect that, you know, when I went to the fighter pilot thing back in 2016, I read mm -hmm. that uh, article and I was like, okay, you know what, I think flight is something that's pretty cool. That kind of was the catalyst. Uh, and so I definitely did it just out of, out of personal interest. Um, but it's been really cool actually to see, uh, it, it ties a whole bunch of things together. So, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, safety factors and designing, uh, for redundancy and, um, how you want to really just not be operating at the limit, but, you know, have, have some buffer. That's very much the case in aviation. You never want to be, you don't want to have any risks or anything. And so, um, it seems First of all, it ties that side of engineering together for me, but then it's cool to see, you know, you have all these mechanical systems, you have, you know, structures, you have uh, your engine and airframe, uh, you know, airfoil design, um, cockpit management, like every, everything, everything in aviation is engineering, right? So it's, mm -hmm. it's been pretty cool to, to have that all, all tied together. And likewise, in my fluid mechanics course, for example, uh, this, this quarter, uh, the prof asked, you know, okay, why do, why do wings have uh, a variable sweep angle uh, going or variable angle of attack along, along the uh, length of the wing. And so thankfully for my private pilot license, uh, I know that, okay, you want to have, you want to have your stall initiated at the root of the wing so that you maintain control over your ailerons. Um, so there's been uh, interesting, you know, crossovers that I didn't, I didn't expect my private pilot license to, you know, inform anything I was doing in grad school, but, um, it actually has a couple instances uh, come back the other way, but um, yeah, I, I guess that uh, that answers your question. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Thank you. It seems like there's some tangible relationships uh, between the two, which has been pretty useful for you. Uh, I kind of I, I have one more question because I'm kind of curious. We we haven't had um, I don't believe any guests that have gone to such a, a storied uh, university that you're at right now. I'm kind of wondering, have you noticed some difference between and not to knock U of A or anything like that, but you know, we come from small town Edmonton, go to the U of A, and now you're at uh, Stanford down in Silicon Valley. Have you, what are the major things you've noticed and some similarities, I guess, between the two institutions that you would speak to that's kind of like uh, maybe more of a, makes it more of a cool experience or a fun experience being there? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, I'd say that, you know, the, the top students here are, you know, no different really than the top students at U of A. Like, I, I know you guys interviewed uh, Meow. She's definitely uh, mm -hmm. brilliant. Um, and so there are many people in uh, in my lab and, and department that are like that. I would mm -hmm. say that just in general, though, 
there's just a, a larger number of those people, a higher percentage. Like you just tell that everyone's kind of turned on. Um, and so the thing that's most palpable from that is that there's just a little bit of, little bit of pressure to perform and it's that, that good pressure where, you know, it's like, okay, I don't feel like my, my job is at stake or anything if I don't perform, but um, everyone is at a level and everyone's trying to, you know, do really well. And so you want to be at that level. And so that's the, the really big thing that I've noticed um, here. Whereas, no knock to U of A, but, you know, a lot of people were there just to, you know, get a degree and get a job and, mm -hmm. you know, the goof on some lectures, they don't really, we don't, aren't that interested in necessarily um, seeing what you're capable of. Whereas the vast majority of people here are, you know, really just interested. Okay. Like let's, let's see what we can get out of this. How, how, how well can we do and uh, what, what can we learn? So that's, that's, I'd say probably the, the biggest difference and the most enjoyable difference that I've found. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, kind of like what you're mentioning is sort of, uh, it's nice to be put in those environments where there's maybe a little bit more of natural pressure to perform. Like, I think as long as you enjoy like having that little bit of pressure on your back, like, you know, it's always going to kind of give you a good outcome because you're probably going to learn and maybe overcome some challenges in your studies a little bit faster. Um, maybe the one of the last questions that I have going forward is, do you have kind of any thoughts on, say, some of the habits or hobbies that you did, or maybe not habits, let's just say hobbies, like any of the hobbies that you did, um, say, like either in high school, university, like, and having kind of like a quite a large impact on maybe say, like, your learning ability for certain things within your master's, your bachelor's and your PhD, because I'm sure, you know, like, say, like a lot of the things that you're picking up now are probably quite unique and new compared to some of the things that you did beforehand. So I'm just wondering if you see any sort of relationship between some of the learning and your uh, hobbies to your current studies. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Uh... You know, I, the hobbies I had in undergrad were, I was mostly playing music outside of school. Um, and so, frankly, I don't really think that that translates too much into what I'm, what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. um, it's been, it's interesting because you hear there's a lot of people down here that know we're in, you know, student groups, uh, working on, you know, things like EcoCar and, um, you know, uh, student engineering projects in undergrad. Um, and they evidently have a lot of transferable skills because they're much more able to um, work on things and know how to do things hands-on in the lab, just troubleshoot. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't really, I don't really have have those things, but um, I don't think it's necessarily to my detriment because then I, I'm able to still learn from my lab mates. But I don't, I wouldn't really say that I have uh, too many transferable hobbies other than perhaps, perhaps flying. But that was a very, very recent addition to my life. Interesting. Nice. No, that's a good one. And I think maybe one of the last things that I want to end on here is, you know, you're going to be done your PhD in due time here. What's next for you after you get the PhD? Where do you want to work? What do you want to do? I'm sorry if I'm asking an existential yeah. question here that you don't have the answer to yet, but it'd be nice to yeah. know what you plan on doing. Yeah. So uh, good question. I had to answer it numerous times in my PhD interviews. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, it's tough as a Canadian uh, and working in the field I'm in, in the United States, because uh, we're just in general. So I'm in aerospace specifically related to propulsion, you know, high temperature uh, gas dynamics. So a lot that just right from the get-go is like rockets, jet engines, uh, and those things are very much related to the military. So uh, in fact, there's actually uh, international traffic and arms regulations, ITAR uh, restrictions that are imposed. So I can't work 
without a, a U.S. citizenship, uh, I can't work at Pratt & Whitney in the United States or um, at uh, SpaceX or anything like that. Like, so right there, my, my hands are tied a little bit. So um, what I plan to do following the PhD, ideally would be to work at you know a company like that. But um, I think more realistically, I'm going to have to work in research at a national lab or something, continuing on perhaps just doing more fundamental science like I am right now, just looking at uh, fundamental reaction rates mm -hmm. um, or potentially uh, I research actually on fuel chemistry at the moment. And so uh, our lab is sponsored by um, right, has contracts with various oil and energy companies. And so it's the potential that I could end up working uh, as a research scientist at one of those companies and perhaps even try to um, find a lot of there and become more of a, a senior uh, researcher or, what have you at one of those companies, but uh, realistically, initially, it looks like I'm probably going to be still stuck in stuck in a lab and doing doing research as we go forward. Well, you know, I would say listening to your story today, whatever lab ends up having you as a researcher there is going to be incredibly lucky. So, you know, uh, very flattering. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say, uh, you know, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today, sharing your story. All the listeners are going to get a lot out of this. You gave a look into what it's like being a PhD student at Stanford and how you got there. I know a lot of people are interested in that. So thank you for sharing everything uh, and best of luck to you in the future. And thanks a lot for having me on, guys. It was enjoyable. Yeah, thank you, Taylor. Really looking forward to, you know, kind of continuing up with you over the years and best of luck with your candidacy for your PhD and also the rest of your PhD program too going down the line. Definitely. Thanks a lot, you guys. So thanks everybody for listening to Taylor's episode. Um, if you made it this far, we hope you really enjoyed like uh, hearing his perspective about what it's been like being a master's student at U of T and then as well PhD student at Stanford. Um, you know, uh, Tyler, what's kind of your thoughts on Taylor's episodes and what were some of the things that really stuck out to you? Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. It gave me definitely a good view into the life of that uh, PhD life at Stanford. And I really appreciated how, you know, one of the things he touched on about him tracking his hours and when he was most effective throughout the week, how many hours he could put into a week. You know, he tracked it when he went into kind of a crunch mode some weeks when he put in a lot of hours and then he saw that his effectiveness dropped right off um, in the week following. And so he kind of knows that his his sweet spot is around, he said, I think around seven hours uh, a day for the, for the week to get that optimal workload in. Um, so it's kind of cool that he tracked that and has his baseline that's getting pretty, uh, pretty, uh, you know, scientific about it. So I like that he has to push a little bit right now, but that just comes with the territory of being a PhD student at Stanford. And then speaking of that, he kind of spoke a little bit about the differences between the environment at Stanford and a school like the U of A. So I thought that that was kind of interesting to hear as well. Um, but overall, like really good information, lots of really actionable tips for if you want to take that path and you want to go do that. And that's a goal of yours in the future. Um, first of all, is it for you? Because that's what it would be like. And then how you can actually uh, attain attain that. So no, I thought it was really good. Really enjoyed it. Great interview with Taylor. What were your thoughts, Dave? Yeah, pretty much. I think like what you're sort of sharing, uh, Tyler, is like pretty similar to what I'm thinking too. You know, it's good to sort of see that perspective. Like if you were curious about like, say like doing a master's or doing a PhD and like you wanted to get it done, you know, it's interesting to see like Taylor's perspective and how many hours a day he's putting into doing like his prep work and his, you know, his research papers and whatnot. And we've had a couple other, you know, guests on the show who've also done masters and have also kind of talked about, you know, like the grind and, but everybody's perspective is a little bit different, right? So I think it's just nice to add like another kind of different perspective 
perspective in the the to into the mix and then kind of see like from Taylor's point of view versus like some of the other guests we've had like Rahul how they view work life balance how they view you know their prep work and whatnot so I think you know it's it's a good perspective to see Taylor's uh, information in on this as well too and yeah, I hope you guys like really enjoyed it. Um, so with that being said, you know, if you're still here at this point, make sure to hammer that like, uh, uh, like button, give a little subscribe. If you're feeling really, really good, you know, you can comment. Uh, yeah, you can always comment, like say how much, you know, you're enjoying the podcast and all the content on here. And uh, yeah, hoping everybody's gonna have a good 2022 and we'll see you guys again soon. See you next time, guys. Have a good one.